This is UNS Talks, a podcast from architecture and design firm UN Studio. For our fourth podcast, we ask Robert Roland Smith to join us in Amsterdam for our annual UN Studio Summer Conference held in Mediamatic. Robert is a British author and philosopher whose books include Derrida and the Autobiography and Breakfast with Socrates, the Philosophy of Everyday Life. For our summer conference on the theme of ownership, Robert stepped away from architecture and design and studied the theme from a philosophical perspective. Throughout his talk, he asks two big questions. First, what would remain of our identity once everything we own is taken away from us? And second, could ownership be seen as a radical form of openness and hospitality? He looks at the history of ownership and its roots in medieval Europe, the concept of ownership as related to self-identity, and ownership in the modern world, in the context of big data. Please note that, as this recording was made not far from Amsterdam Central Station, you may hear some passing trains throughout this recording. I'm going to talk uh, kind of more broadly, really, about this notion of uh, ownership, uh, partly in relation to homes, partly in relation to jobs, partly in relation to the sound space that we're in at the moment, which isn't owned entirely by the speaker, as we can, we can tell. So the notion of um, ownership, although it's kind of one that exercises people a lot at the moment, um, has kind of deep origins in the, um, in the history of, kind of medieval Europe, really. And one of the biggest transitions towards modernity I suppose, was the shift from the concept of um, a person being owned to property being owned. So uh, to put it kind of very simply, uh, you can imagine a feudal society in which the lords and burghers and the, uh, the nobles own both people and property. So if you're a farmer, you have a tithe, or you're a slave, you're literally a serf, you're owned by uh, a person, the lord of the manor to a shift that begins kind of in the early Renaissance and goes, goes through until the early 17th century that begins to devolve that model whereby individuals are no longer owned in quite the same way and access to property uh, really changes. And that's uh, not least because the origin of the notion of credit. So credit comes around uh, in, the, in the early part of the 18th century and capitalism kind of grows as a result of the fact that people can now borrow money which they don't have to return immediately. And capital, which is formerly almost entirely uh, tied up, not just with land, but with uh, aristocracy and the kind of what we today call the brand of aristocracy, begins to loose, loosen some of its grip. And of course, we're in Amsterdam, which in a certain sense is the very seat of capitalism, you know, the kind of the origins of it, where stocks and shares first started to be, uh, started to be traded. So now you're... Uh, you're kind of in the early modern period, in the early 18th century. Credit's available, people can borrow money. And along with that, there comes a new sense of what identity is. So people begin to identify themselves with what they own um, and not just who they are or their position in, in society. So uh, self-ownership becomes uh, kind of possible as a concept for the very first time. And I think one of the uh, points I want to get to is whether or not we own property in the tangible sense, whether we uh, own ourselves uh, and the degree to which we own ourselves. 
So to put that uh, kind of very starkly, if a thousand years ago most of us would have been owned by a master, our identity or our self, neither of which are particularly medieval words, would have been owned by a master, today there's a question of whether we are owned by, obviously the obvious example is big tech. So we feel we own ourselves in the sense we feel we own our histories, our psychologies, our bodies, and so on. But insofar as we are now uh, willingly or unwillingly imparting uh, data on a daily basis to uh, big technology and indeed small tech firms, there's a question again about the degree to which we, we own ourselves and the degree to which we coincide with who we are. And I suppose... Um, the kind of philosophical point behind that is, uh, what do you continue to own of yourself once you've given away all your data? So what is it about you that you're, to use a, a word from Heidegger, what is your own most? What's the thing that's most inalienable about you? Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, Marx and Freud, but I mentioned Heidegger, and I'll just say something about him in, in passing. What Heidegger says that we own the most about ourselves, and this isn't the most cheery subject for a Friday afternoon, but um, being Heidegger, of course, his answer was death. Uh, there's nothing more inalienable than our own deaths. We can't die somebody else's death. And uh, so the notion of being towards death is the horizon in which we all live. That's the thing that is most inseparable from us, and the thing, even if we wish to be able to uh, become disowned of that, we'll never succeed in being able to because it's utterly inalienable. So, um, although property, if you like, is something that can be traded, and, and the whole of the, this, this event, in a certain sense, is based around the idea that property can be owned, and if it can be owned, it can be disowned, it can be sold, it can be traded, there are certain fundamental things about what it means to be a human being which, uh, which cannot actually be uh, uh, got rid of, and the Heidegger's example is the most extreme of those. Um, I'll come back to that in a second, but I just wanted then to touch on both Marx and Freud. I mean, uh, one of Marx's most sort of interesting statements or axioms, I suppose, is that all property is theft. You've probably heard this, this concept. And it's interesting that, you know, in a, in a broadly, I would imagine, sort of left-leaning audience that we are here, uh, the assumption might be that actually not all property is theft, that property actually allows for assertions of individuality, selfhood, and indeed freedom. And for the kind of serfs of the medieval period, who uh, a few centuries later were able to own property, that itself really was a sign of freedom. You know, once, you, once you own your own property, you become like the masters from whom you've uh, removed yourselves. So um, freedom and ownership seem to go together. But of course, for Marx, that's absolutely not the case. Because as soon as people begin to own property, capitalism kicks in. And there's a kind of race to the top rather than the race to the bottom in which the few who can own capital are able to generate capital out of capital through uh, interest, essentially. So there's a real question there about uh, you know, what it means to own things, whether ownership is a form of freedom or, in fact, a kind of closet form of, of slavery, which, of course, for Marx it would be. Um, hence the notion of communism. 
where in fact not even the state owns things. I mean, pure communism in the Communist Manifesto is not a sharing economy. Uh, that there simply is no ownership of any kind. Um, kind of about the same time, kind of the early thinking of, or a little bit later, the early thinking of Freud comes along, and he asks a more fundamental question about what can be owned by human beings. And you know, the kind of startling fact, I suppose, from Freud is that we don't really even own ourselves because um, although we uh, might have developed during the Enlightenment to think that we are transparent to ourselves, have the possibility of self-ownership, and so become realized in this sort of free space of early capitalism, for Freud, that can never really be the case for the very good reason that we all have an unconscious. So, uh, you know, Freud in one of his early papers says, you know, uh, that the, the fact of the unconscious, the fact that we all have an unconscious, means essentially we're not masters in our own house. So even with our own inner life, we are disowned. We're not at home in our home. And those of you who speak German in the, in the audience will know that the word unheimlich, which is the word uncanny, um, kind of points to this notion that we have an uncanny kind of co-conspirator, uh, kind of co-cohabitant uh, co with us within our own psyches that actually is an, uh, engineering our own decisions and so on whom we can't even control ourselves. So the, um, the idea of self-ownership is sort of displaced entirely uh, because we can never kind of fully own ourselves. And even if we were to live in a society, either one of uh, a kind of absolute communism or a kind of absolute capitalism or the strange sort of neoliberal space where we seem to be edging towards at the moment, which is kind of halfway between the two, even if we were in that space, we would still be subject to the, uh, to the edicts, to the uh, perhaps malign, perhaps benign control of these kind of inner voices. Now, you know, that, that might sound problematic to some degree, but I think that's actually quite an interesting way in which the unconscious and this notion of the unheimlich uh, has a role in the discourse we're talking about today in the kind of more everyday life of uh, architecture and design. and the unheimlich is that it gives us an experience of the other. Uh, we are exposed to things that we wouldn't normally be exposed to. And in a, whatever we want to call it, in a late capitalist environment such as the one we're in at the moment, um, the effort of ownership or the anxiety about ownership brings with it, of course, the risk that in owning something, whether it's a property or other material goods or indeed intangible goods, what we do is we shore up our identities and therefore become less permeable by the other. In other words, we build fortresses. So as soon as you have a, you know, a stake in property, you are able to kind of build defenses, both psychological and physical, and, there, and therefore your acceptance of or openness to the other drops uh, accordingly or it kind of in proportion to that. So this question of ownership is is quite deep because it brings with it the risk of uh, the repudiation of the other or the kind of the rejection of the other in some way. And I think perhaps a more interesting, uh, to me at least, a kind of more interesting way of uh, thinking about this would be through the notion, particularly, I mean, Jacques Derrida talks about this, 
uh, the notion of hospitality, which I think is perhaps a more interesting concept than that of ownership at the moment. Because uh, the notion of the host is the one who welcomes. But in order to welcome, you have to have a place in, from which to welcome people. So a home, whether you own it or not, could be defined as the place from which you give a welcome. And welcoming is interesting because it works in two directions. First of all, precisely because it gives you a home, it gives you a sense of self. So if you can say welcome to somebody, you are saying, I am here, this is my place, you're welcome. In other words, it's a statement of where you are, what you own, and your identity. So it's, it gives, as it were, the privilege of possession, welcome. But at the same time, it allows in the other person. So it's, it kind of works on the cusp between being at home and allowing the home to be something other than the place which I exclusively own because of an, I have invited in the other person. So hospitality is neither about pure ownership, nor is it about the risk of rejecting the other. It occupies this, literally the threshold space. And of course, the gesture of welcoming takes place on the threshold. It doesn't take place inside the building, inside the home. It takes place on that liminal space between the inside and the outside. And that's the place where precisely my ownership of my place can be marked as the foreigner or stranger, the xenos in Greek, comes across the threshold. Uh, and is also the place, therefore, that I am risking the possibility of losing what I have. Because in the notion of the foreigner, the other, the stranger, is always the risk of my own dispossession in some ways. So to welcome somebody always carries an implicit risk that I will be dispossessed in some way. But without that risk, the gesture of welcoming is not a valid or an important or an interesting or a worthy one. In fact, Derrida goes much further and he points out that the word host is directly related, it shares the same etymological root as the word hostility or hostile. So in principle, to be a good host, to welcome somebody, you've got to be prepared to welcome even whoever is inimical, the hostile, the foreigner, the stranger, the attacker. Because if you only welcome what's familiar, if the home is just the place for welcoming what you already know, in a sense, you're not welcoming at all. You're just uh, reaffirming your identity. You're assimilating what you already know. You are uh, shoring up your own base, as it were. True hospitality, and Derrida coins this phrase, hostipitality, uh, would involve the, uh, the real um, option or the real possibility of welcoming into the home even that which is potentially disruptive to you. This became very uh, real a couple of years ago in the midst of the kind of so-called refugee crisis where there were a few cases, uh, particularly kind of liberal-minded people having kind of signs in their buildings, in their houses, saying, refugees, welcome. And of course, uh, in most cases, as I understand, that, that passed off perfectly happily. But of course, in a few cases, people welcomed in the refugees and didn't like who they got. You know, the relationships didn't go so well. So they welcomed in the other into the home the place of belonging, uh, in this gesture of welcoming. But in doing so, they were exposed to a true otherness. And of course, that's what otherness is. If otherness simply reinforces our sense of self, our sense of home, our sense of what is ours, it's not really otherness. So for me, this is quite an interesting concept. And it's a way of, um, I think, moving on a bit this discussion about what ownership really is, uh, which is neither quite 
a kind of binary, owning, renting, whatever it might be. It's a form of a kind of radical, uh, a kind of radical openness or a kind of extreme form of what Freud writes about under the rubric of the unheimlich, the unhomely. So you own the place and it's your home, uh, but in the owning of it, you're allowed to welcome somebody in. And in the welcoming of somebody in, you're actually uh, uh, creating the possibility of a sort of true otherness, a true openness to what's different and what's other. And I think that's a sort of, that's a kind of more interesting way perhaps of, of thinking about what uh, ownership might be that both secures ownership and opens it up to the possibility of uh, disruption and of course brings us into contact with uh, other people in a new and I think different way that um, disrupts how we identify with ourselves perhaps, uh, shakes a little bit our sense of tribal belonging, um, moves us in the direction of a kind of dispossession uh, at a kind of existential level. Um, and I suppose that's where I'd want to end on because um, you know, Heidegger says the only thing we can never lose is our being towards death. And I suppose there's no real arguing with that. Um, but I think it's probably not a bad exercise for us uh, to think about either politically, socially, emotionally, or even spiritually to think about what true dispossession would look like and what we'd be left of ourselves. What would, be, what would remain once we have everything taken away? Of course, it's a core concept in religion and spirituality. It's a core theme in Shakespeare, particularly in uh, Shakespeare's King Lear. If you remember, there's a, there's a big theme about the king literally losing everything and asking himself what's left. Um, and for me, that would be you know, quite an interesting way as well as this notion of hospitality, of interrogating ourselves about what we own. Okay, we can take away everything, apart from what Heidegger calls the being towards death. What else is there of us? And do we need something? Is it okay to be empty? Uh, is it okay for us to have um, merely a kind of transient identity? Um, something that allows us to be identified temporarily, like a passport, but doesn't necessarily reflect our inner core assuming there isn't in a core of any kind. So anyway, two ideas to, to think about for today. Um, they are kind of philosophical rather than kind of architectural or design related. First of all, this notion of a kind of radical hospitality is the first thought I want to uh, leave you with, I suppose. And uh, the second thought really of what, uh, if anything, we fundamentally own that we can't be dispossessed of other than what Heidegger talks about in terms of our being towards death. You know, what is that core? And uh, actually, would it be liberating in some way even to be dispossessed of that? Thank you very much, Robert. Thank you. And that's all from UNS Talks. To learn more about Robert's work, you can find him online at robertrollandsmith.com. Tune in for our next live stream on July the 19th, where we'll be hosting the curators of the incredible exhibition at the BNA Future Stats here. You can follow our live stream on Instagram or on Facebook Live. To sign off, be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Podbean, or your preferred podcast provider. A special thanks to Wayfar and the Boar for recording this lecture, and thanks to Media Mari for hosting our conference. 
see you.